It's Wednesday, January 26th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. NFTs have taken over the art world and millions of dollars are being spent on these digital artworks. But how much are they really worth? Right now, the Institute for Contemporary Art Miami is going through the difficult process to determine the value of a CryptoPunks NFT named Priscilla in case it gets destroyed, but also for tax purposes for the donor. Kevin Dugan, reporter at New York Magazine, joins us for more on what determines an NFT's value. Next, according to a recent survey of mayors across the country, 73% of them believe that voters do hold them accountable for handling homelessness in their cities, but many of them don't feel like they have control over the issue. A third of mayors said they don't even have staff dedicated to it. Jennifer Kingson, chief correspondent at Axios, joins us for how some mayors feel powerless to reduce homelessness. Finally, one of the common themes of the pandemic keeps persisting. Nurses stretch too thin and looking for help to avoid burnout. The healthcare sector has lost about 500,000 workers since February of 2020. The staffing shortages, coupled with medical workers getting sick with COVID themselves, is pushing them to the brink. Julie Wernow, health and medicine reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. And tax authorities who have to figure out tax breaks for donors, they have to come to a conclusion about essentially what's the real value of all of this. And this is taking place as people are taking a look at these and saying, why would you pay millions of dollars in some cases for what amounts to a JPEG? Joining us now is Kevin Dugan, reporter at New York Magazine. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, we've seen the NFT market blow up the non-fungible tokens. And uh, one of the things that's so crazy about it is the big amounts of money that are being spent on it. You know, a lot of people don't really fully understand what NFTs are yet, much less how to uh, assign a value, a price to them. And that's what we're seeing right now in the art world, how museums are trying to figure out what NFTs are actually worth and determining what value for insurance, tax purposes, all sorts of stuff. And there's an interesting story out of the Institute for Contemporary Art Miami. They bought a CryptoPunks NFT called Priscilla. One was being donated to them, but they're having a hard time right now trying to figure out the true value of that. So, Kevin, tell us uh, what we're seeing in this story. About six months ago, ICI Miami, they had this piece of NFT art donated to them by one of their trustees. Uh, This is a, you know, uh, it's a pixelated cartoon of a woman with purple lipstick and um, it last traded for uh, over $120,000. This CryptoPunks are one of the more popular NFTs. Essentially what they are is their own form of cryptocurrency and they come packaged with these JPEGs, these images uh, that make them distinguishable to one another and give the owners something basically to brag about. And so as a work of art, this is a really brand new area for galleries and for museums to consider. So when it was donated to ICA Miami, one of the problems in understanding what the deal was with it was how much is it worth? It's tied to a cryptocurrency uh, called Ethereum, which is the second most popular uh, crypto out there. And these NFTs, they typically trade on open markets, but often a lot of the trades that happen are fake. So nobody really knows what these are actually worth. So 
you're having insurance companies which have to replace these NFTs in case they get stolen or hacked, and tax authorities who have to figure out tax breaks for donors, they have to come to a conclusion about essentially what's the real value of all of this. And this is taking place as people are taking a look at these and saying, why would you pay millions of dollars in some cases for what amounts to a JPEG? It's taken six months for them to go through this process. They still don't have that final number for what it's worth. And and you mentioned how much it's sold for, right? It, it went for a high price. So You'd think that price is the price, but as you mentioned, it's tied to Ethereum. It's tied to these cryptocurrencies that are really volatile. So the value of it is is really hard to pinpoint. Right. And this is one of the ironies of this, right? Because when you have these open, transparent markets, these open exchanges, you would think that the price is the price. But in fact, with the art market, where things have been done behind closed doors, where people can take a look at a broad swath of different types of art that's changed hands over decades, if not centuries, then you can start comparing these prices. The problem is that this is just so new, and you've really never had art that is essentially its own type of money before. So this is a new way of thinking about valuing art. How does the art world and art dealers feel about things like NFTs? I know on one hand, it gives them access to younger buyers, uh, people that are, you know, want to buy the NFTs, kind of want to start making money that way, trading and selling them. So on on one hand, you have that. But on the other side of it, you have the kind of traditional art world built on exclusivity and, and all this other stuff. And one of the guys that you spoke to that owns a gallery says, you know, they might have to invent new ways to create the aura of exclusivity or privilege when it comes to NFTs. So uh, even for them, their their whole kind of uh, uh, model has been thrown upside down when it comes to NFTs. The people who I've spoken with are very divided about whether NFTs really will be the future of art, whether it's a component of art, or whether it's just a passing fad. Nobody's saying they're not art, right? But I think that there is a lot of skepticism that, you know, what you're seeing will have real lasting value for that long. Certainly when you take a look at like CryptoPunks or Bored Apes or other early, very popular NFT art works, there is some real art historical value to it. So uh, there may not be NFTs that are as popular as these in the future, but they've broken ground in a way. So that makes them you know, worthwhile for galleries and for museums to invest in them because people can look back and say, okay, well, this is indicative of a moment in time. But yeah, I mean, you know, the art world is exclusive. It requires people to be vetted. It requires people to have been in the market for a while, especially when it comes to the upper levels of fine art. And so there's a culture clash between the kind of staid institutional art world and the upstart nature of cryptocurrencies that is seeking to disrupt just about everything. Kevin Dugan, reporter at New York Magazine. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. These steps are meant to mitigate the hazardous conditions that encampments pose to vulnerable individuals who need treatment and shelter. Joining us now is Jennifer Kingston, Chief Correspondent at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Jennifer. Great to be here, Oscar. 
homelessness is obviously one of those issues that is still a huge problem in all, in all parts of the country. It's a very complicated issue, something really tough to get a handle on and fix. Right now, what we're seeing is a, a recent survey of mayors talking about the issue and saying that they understand that their constituents hold them largely accountable for addressing homelessness, but unfortunately, they don't feel like they have a lot of control over it. They don't have the resources, let's say, to really get a handle on that. So, Jennifer, what are we hearing from mayors across the country on this? A survey done by Boston University finds that of 126 mayors, the vast majority of them, 73%, know that their constituents are holding them accountable for this problem, which is so visible in so many American cities and causes such heartbreak for the, for the people who are unhoused. Uh, yet only 19% think that they have any control, the money, the political support, the ability to create housing in order to do something about it. And frankly, advocates for the homeless say that the mayors aren't that far off. They have influence, but they don't have the dollars, and uh, it's, it, they're in a tough position. One of the things that the mayors said that they need more of is data, data to see where the problem points are and obviously what works when we're, we're fixing it. And part of it is hard to gauge because I think they canceled some of the counts, homelessness counts for last year because of the pandemic. I live in Los Angeles, and so th- it's a it's a huge issue here locally for me. And anecdotally, I can only say that it it, it seems like the problem has gotten worse. It's a good point about the data being absent or problematic. Every year, HUD requires cities to do what they call an annual point in time census of the homeless population. They literally go out on one night in January and they have volunteers and staff members who go count the homeless people who are in encampments. The last time that happened was in uh, January of 2020 because of the pandemic. It was canceled last year or was optional for cities. And this year, HUD is requiring cities to do it. But because of COVID, many places are postponing it. So we, we don't know what has happened since the pandemic in terms of absolute numbers for unhoused people. What we do know, and this is the silver lining, there is good news on this front, is that the number of unhoused families is believed to have gone down, both because of uh, tax credits and heightened unemployment benefits. Advocates for the homeless tell me that they're seeing more families in permanent or semi-permanent housing or staying with family members who've taken them in during the pandemic. So there actually is some good news, though it's, it's not entirely visible to uh, you and me and other people who live in big cities where, where there are big right. encampments. Almost a third of them said they had no staff dedicated to the issue of homelessness. So obviously that ranges across the country, right? We don't know exactly which mayor said that and all that, but that sounds uh, uh, pretty amazing to see that, you know, some departments just don't have anybody dedicated to the issue. This is one of those rare situations where there is a ray of hope on the homelessness front, both in the American Rescue Plan Act and the CARES Act, these two giant pieces of legislation that uh, were passed on the federal level to funnel money to places to uh, give pandemic-era assistance. There are billions of dollars earmarked for homeless services of all type for helping families and individuals who are at risk to creating permanent and semi-permanent housing. There really is a lot of promise out there, and uh, mayors, particularly in coordination with 
with their states are going to be able to use these dollars, hopefully to make a dent in homelessness. We may actually see the needle move a little bit in the months and years ahead if these dollars are deployed wisely. 80% of mayors said that police in some form, you know, they have influence over the policy surrounding homelessness. So police is a huge part of this issue, too. Well, homeless encampments and those of us who live in cities uh, know that these are are a sad fact of life. It's a real catch-22 because cities that have been uh, uh, disbanding their encampments, most recently Boston and Minneapolis have been doing this, you get flack in both directions because it's it's uh, very cruel to make people leave the community of the homeless encampment unless there's a place to go to. Sometimes they they broke up break up the camps and move people into uh, shelters or other form of uh, indoor housing. Uh, but other times people are rousted from where they've been living and just told to find another place to go. And that, of course, is a bad situation all around. Nobody wants to see anybody living on the street. But unless there are acceptable options, places for people to move where there isn't community opposition and so forth, right. it's really an intractable problem. What we can only hope is that these uh, extra housing dollars that are coming down from the federal government can make Make a change that uh, will be meaningful for people who are experiencing homelessness. Jennifer Kingston, Chief Correspondent at Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Great to talk to you. Thank you. We made decisions on who would live and who would die. In the emergency room, we were taking care of 11, 12 patients at a time when you really should be taking care of four or five. You're allowing people to remain in a suffering state because you simply can't get to them. Joining us now is Julie Wernow, health and medicine reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Julie. Good to be here. I like checking in on what's going on with hospitals around the country when it comes to uh, you know what we're all dealing with with the pandemic right now. It, it's a tough time for hospitals. Uh, you know, you talk about any industry that's being affected by the pandemic. The hospital, the medical field, is getting some of the worst of it. You know, they're having to deal with sick patients, take care of them, both with COVID and without just the normal procedures and and illnesses. But then at the same time, the hospital workers themselves, nurses, doctors they're catching COVID too. So they're having to call out sick and it affects everything. That's why we keep tuning in to see how much the pandemic is impacting them the most. Um, So uh, Julie, uh, tell us what we're seeing right now. We're seeing a lot of nurses uh, being stretched very thin. A lot of them are trying not to get burnout, but it's just a tough situation. That's right. I think that burnout is something that When you talk to nurses, the way they describe it, it's not so much a matter of just being overworked. What some of them have called a sort of a a moral injury. So you have a situation where you have, let's say, multiple patients in front of you. You don't feel like you have the resources to give them the proper care. In some cases, you have folks now having to choose between patients. And so at this point, what happens is it becomes a compounding problem. So you have nurses in already short-staffed hospitals leaving those hospitals and then creating an even more difficult problem, essentially because they're burned out and the burnout just continues to spread. Tell me a little bit about the staffing shortages, because you did uh, talk about Allegheny Health Network. They said 
that more than 1,100 nurse positions are open in their health network. The healthcare sector overall has lost nearly 500,000 workers. This is from uh, fe- since February 2020. So we're seeing huge staff shortages that are just completely unrelated to people being out sick. Yes, that's right. I mean, going into the Omicron surge, the hospitals were already very short staffed. And depending where you are in the country, that kind of situation is even more acute. So say you're in a large metro area, there's apps, for instance, that you can like log into and fill in various shifts. So somebody from one hospital might be able to fill in another hospital. But then when you get out and out and out into like more rural areas, that situation is much more difficult. There might not be anyone for miles around to fill that shift. So if you have two nurses and you really need four nurses, and then you have one of those nurses out with Omicron, you have to cut down services. You have people being sent to hospitals hours away, and that's happening all over the country right now. And so how are the nurses and other medical staff reacting? There are some nurses who say that this is their corporate parents or the hospitals not being willing to really do everything they can to fix the problem, to staff up, to pay for the staff they need. And when you talk to the hospitals, they'll say, you know, look, we've been trying to find people. There just aren't any workers. A lot of the nurses are now uh, leaving for these travel nurse jobs that pay just incredible sums. And usually, you know, it's not the places that have the least resources that are going to be getting those nurses, right? So it just creates a problem where the places that are sort of the have-nots become even bigger have-nots because the nurses that they do have are are fleeing for, you know, higher ground. The travel nurse thing is an interesting thing because, uh, you know, you kind of need them to allocate, reallocate resources, things like that. But also, you know, then they do pay a lot more to be a travel nurse. So you can be in a situation where... You've been at a hospital for a lot longer. You probably do the same job. And this other person's getting paid so much more just to be there because they're part of this other program. So there's a lot of issues that, that come through on that travel nurse thing. And, you know, a big job changes for a lot of people. Let's say some nurses, medical staff, they, they just can't handle it. They, they are burnt out or they've done this COVID thing for two years and don't want to do it anymore. You know, you, you profiled a woman who left her nursing job In late 2021, she was making about $80,000 a year with benefits. She left to another really tough industry. She went to go be a teacher, but now she's making less than $30,000 a year. So a lot of trade-offs, but that's just another tough industry to get into as well. That's right. Yeah, I I actually uh, spoke to that nurse a couple of times in the last few months. And when I checked, she she left that job in late 2021. We, We obviously checked in the other day about this story and she said she's just she's just happier. She said she had no idea like the weight that was on her and how it was affecting just her body and her mental health to be in the situations that she was in, including, you know, one particularly harrowing night where she had to choose between two babies that needed to be transported for emergency care because there just weren't enough staff. Julie Wernow, health and medicine reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez. 
And this was your Daily Dive.